It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. before hey welcome aboard if you've heard the show before you got a pretty good idea of what we're doing uh the first part of the show we talk about estate planning and elder law and the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally avoiding going through court that's avoiding probate and while you're alive to some extent you want to avoid going through a guardianship proceeding and as far as elder law is concerned our main object in elder law is to try to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we we talk about politics, history, religion, and today we're going to be talking about history a little bit. You know, a few listeners uh, over the few months have said, we'd love to hear some of the old Ed Barr's interviews. So we decided to do that. My son, Michael, realized that this a few days ago was the beginning of Grierson's raid. Now, Grierson's raid was a historic raid of the Civil War where Benjamin Grierson, um, a music teacher before the war, um, led a raid of about a 1,000 horse soldiers, which is where the movie John Wayne, John Ford movie, The Horse Soldiers, came from. And if you watch the movie, and there's a difference of opinion on this, but I, I think it's reasonably, for a Hollywood movie, it's reasonably accurate. The maps are right, the route of the... Um, March or the raid is correct. Um, yeah, Ed Bars mentions it a little bit in his conversation, but you know, than they had in real life, more people died in the movie than died in the in women in real life. And of course, John Wayne has a love interest in the movie, which that's what sells movie tickets. But Ed didn't like that idea one time remember he said i don't think he said it on this show but he did say what's john wayne traipsing about with a woman when there's a war to be won but uh it 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 was a historic film and it does there's a lot of it that i feel it really does capture the history of the time the the maneuvering the moving the amount of time amount of miles that these soldiers had to travel and in real life these guys went 600 miles through the heart of the south in the middle of the civil war from um lagrange tennessee to baton rouge louisiana and they only lost three men out of a thousand going through the you know the heart of the south 
And it's very hard to believe, but, you know, Mississippi back then was not heavily populated or whatever. So they used the back roads. And, of course, part of the part of the uh, part of the movie, too, there, there were 20 Southerners who were part of the regiments that were on the raid. And they were born in the South and they wore Confederate uniforms and were the scouts. And that's part of the reason they were being able to outmaneuver the Confederate Army. So we're going to be talking about Grierson's raid with Ed Bars. Ed Bars, sadly, we lost a few years ago. But it is very close to the anniversary of the start of the Grierson's raid campaign, which was part of the Vicksburg campaign. It was kind of like a diversion, diversionary tactic. Grant sent a number of cavalry regiments out to the south, play havoc in the south. And, of course, one of the great diversions there was, there were thousands and thousands of Confederate soldiers who were chasing after these things thousand Yankees, and it brought troops away from the the Vicksburg campaign. But in the meanwhile, Beth, what question do we have? This is one that comes up all the time. Um, this this question is from several people, and I'm just going to put it with one question. The, the, what is undue influence when you've got an elderly person and you're worried about that maybe there, someone is, is, put, is putting undue influence on them? Um, that I know it's a hard question to answer, but um, it's it's a concern that I think anybody has if they um, have a loved one who's elderly and maybe somewhat isolated, and someone uh, someone might try to um, you know t- say things to them to twist what you know they might say, maybe turn them against the family, you know. All kinds of things happen. Uh, Undue influence, basically, the the general definition is that one person substitutes their will for another person. And, you know, that it's very hard to prove. And it's it's also very hard to, to draw the lines because you're allowed to influence someone. You know, if let's say you got three kids and one of the children has been taking advantage of mom has taken a lot of money is it wrong for the other kids to talk to mom and say hey wait a minute joe has gotten a lot of assets over the years do you think it's right to just keep enabling him to you know let's say he's got a bad habit or something just give him more money to maybe he shouldn't get much more maybe you should even it out to the other children that's not undue influence but it's still influence, and, and that's the problem. Anybody can exercise influence. And, I mean, a question between husband and wife, they could have a discussion what they need to do, what they want to do with their planning, and let's say they have an argument and they have a discussion going back and forth. That's not necessarily undue influence, but they are trying to influence each other. So it's very difficult. Basically, the, the idea behind undue influence, it's really not the will of the person who is making the will, but some other person who's forcing them to sign it. But the thing is, the people that are good on undue influence cover their tracks, and it's almost impossible to to prove. One of the things, just in my mind, um, where I, if I look at a will to try to determine whether it might be undue influence, I, I look a lot at the what-ifs. You know, like if, if you have a will, and this is just my own personal bias, but if you have a will and you say, I leave everything to, you know, my nephew or whatever, and... There are 10 other nephews and nieces. And you say, I leave it to my nephew 
period, and there's no alternates, then it comes to my mind, well, why wouldn't you think about an alternate if something happens to my nephew? And I think a lot in that case is that shows that the person who was making the will was just concerned about the nephew, didn't care about the what-ifs, and there might be undue influence. That, to me, is uh, you know one of the things I look for when I'm looking at a will. Another thing is who did the will? Was it you know the family lawyer that's been dealing with the, let's say, the writer, the testator, testatrix? Um, did they do 10 wills for her before over the years? Or were the lawyers changed? That's one of the, the factors. Like, in other words, Mrs. Smith had her family lawyer do her prior wills, and then all of a sudden she switches and she picks another lawyer that had no connection except maybe to the beneficiary of the will. And like I said, it's very hard. And and one of the things that people that exercise undue influence, they try to isolate people. And they obviously tell lies. Oh, your your other nephews and nieces don't care about you. They don't want anything to do with you. They never visit. They never call. Well, at the same time, that nephew that's exercising undue influences is isolating. Oh, Aunt Martha doesn't want to talk to you. She's mad at you. Um, and, tr- and they try to sow discord or whatever. You know, it's, it's very hard. Now, in today's world, if somebody, you know, brings an action, let's say somebody's trying to probate a will, and one of the... Um, other relatives involved contest the will on undue influence. It's very hard, but at the same time in today's world, and it's just a fact of life, there's going to be a settlement. How good or how large or how small a settlement will depend on what what are all the facts that come in what they call discovery and depositions. What are the medical records? Because here's the thing. If you got a, a vibrant 65-year-old person who's going to work every day, they're not going to be susceptible to undue influences. A 90-year-old woman who's depending on, let's say, that nephew to pay all her bills and to uh, pay the home attendance. And to if, and if that person leaves, if that nephew leaves her, she's very vulnerable and she could be, you know, in effect, left out in the cold and maybe even die or something, especially in her mind. So that would be one of the factors. Um, and... You you know again it's hard it's hard to exercise undue influence over years and years, and at the same time if somebody did a will fifteen years ago, and they die now and the will was done fifteen years ago it's hard to believe it was undue influence because somewhere in those fifteen years the person could get on the phone and speak to somebody else speak to another lawyer and somehow manage to do a new will now again if a will's done when a person's ninety five years old and they die at ninety six and there no backups in the will there's no backup plan and there's stories of isolation then you got a good case for undue influence of course what were the medical records you know and somebody 90 years old is going to have some uh infirmities that would put some question on it and you know like a lot of part of the law there's no clear answer to this stuff it just depends what happens and it may be decided by a jury and I hate to say this, but you never know what a jury's going to say because there's some juries that just think, there's some people on juries that think, well, you shouldn't disinherit a member of the family, no matter what the facts are. Even if that member of the family, you know, stole from them or, or did ABC, they're just some people, you shouldn't disinherit members of the family. So, and, and they'll think that, and you can try to vet them 
on what they call the voir dire for, for the jury, but sometimes people have their own agendas which don't come out. And a, a jury, you never know what they're going to say, what they're going to do, how they're going to react. You know, they may not like the the person who's receiving anything under the will. They may like them because maybe they have a personality, maybe a little bit of a con man personality and somehow can convince the jury. So it, it it's not clear. Basically, if you're worried about somebody contesting your will, then you may want to do certain things like, do a trust, um, see a lawyer a couple of times about maybe doing a follow-up to your will, doing a will of, you know, pretty much the same uh, breakdown of your assets and things like that. And no matter what, if you're doing a will, one thing I always suggest, always have a what if. You know, like I leave everything to my nephew and and you're 90 and your nephew's 55. Well, nothing's going to happen to my nephew. That ain't true people young people die all the time and you don't want chaos if all right let's say you legitimately want to leave it all to your nephew well put in if something happens to my nephew uh i want to leave it to his children i want to leave it to his wife uh i want to leave it to my other nephews and nieces whatever but always i would always put an alternate no matter what and and depending on the age of the people let's say this happens occasionally somebody says well i want to leave it to my brother and my sister Okay, how old are you? I'm 85. How old's your brother? He's 84. How old's your sister? She's 83. Well, then, hey, maybe we should think about what if you're the survivor of the three of you? What do we do? And, of course, some people don't want to think about those things, especially if they have an only child and they want to leave everything to an only child and they want to conceive of the problem that the only child may die before them. But it's something, it's one of those questions you should look at, make your decisions, do your planning, and then take it from there. Now, a question between husband and wife. Can a wife exercise undue influence on a husband? And I know some judges said that's really, you can't have undue influence because the marital relationship is such that you have to influence each other. But there have been a couple of cases here and there, not many, where you, let's say, have a 90-year-old husband and maybe a 60-year-old wife is exercising a lot of influence over him, and some bad things happen. So, uh I'm I'm sorry I'm not giving a clear answer, but if you want to come in and talk about it and you, you have a case where you think somebody's exercised undue influence over your relatives, we can talk about it, see if we think there's a, a possibility of a case. And again, we could be wrong because you don't know what a jury's going to do. You don't know what facts. You don't know all the facts at the beginning of the case. But if you want to talk it over, we're, we're more than you know willing to talk it over with you. And if you want to do your planning, you're afraid there's some relatives out there that may... Uh, exercise undue influence on you in the future, you may want to do a trust with some of your other family members and limit the the changes that you can make. In other words, that the beneficiaries of a trust have to be descendants of, you know, the husband and wife. I know a lot of times people do that because they're afraid either way, you know, if something happens to the husband, he leaves everything to his wife, he might be afraid that all the money that she has, she may be subject to undue influence because she's not that sophisticated. And I know another one, too, you know, like sometimes the wife's worried. The husband dies, he's going to marry somebody else and leave it to her instead of the kids. So we can do trust limiting the choices. We've got to be careful what we wish for. But it's points to be talked about. Now, we need to take a short break. When we take a short break, we're going to be talking to Ed Bars 
on Grierson's Raid. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage. Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. The Guild for Exceptional Children, or GEC, has been providing excellent care to children and adults with developmental disabilities since 1958. It is our mission to help build better lives and brighter futures for the people in our care. We serve nearly 1,000 individuals each day and are proud that 90 cents of every dollar is used for actual services. Please visit www.gecbklyn.org or call 718-833-6633 to learn more. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Right now, we're very privileged to have the greatest battlefield guide of the Civil War, Ed Bars. And we've talked about some of the major battles of the war, but now we're going to be talking about a raid, Grierson's raid. And how are you doing today, Mr. Bars? Very well. I've, uh... Just got back. I spent the weekend in. I spent most of last week out in Colorado looking at Indian War battlefields. What battlefield were you talking about? Indian War battlefields uh, in the in the seventeen in the 1870s. Well, today our topic is Grierson's raid, and our first question is, who was Colonel Grierson? Uh, Colonel Grierson uh, was a uh, person you would not uh, visualize to be a uh, uh, an 
important player or one of the heroes of the Civil War. He was born in the uh, Pittsburgh area, and as a uh, as a young man in his uh, mid-teens, he was kicked in the face uh, by a horse, and he hated horses. By the time of the Civil War, he's living in the area of he moved his family. He moved earlier in his life after he became an adult, in which he taught music. He uh, moved to Jacksonville, uh, Illinois, uh, which is uh, probably about 50 miles uh, south and west of. Uh, Springfield was teaching, uh, was a music teacher, being a patriotic fellow. Uh, he uh, married and he had children at this time. He uh, volunteered for ser- service and was uh, or- an and was, as uh, luck would have it, is uh, assigned to the cavalry. And this is what he will lead uh, during the raid. And he, uh, from his youth, he had uh, not been a particular admirer of horses. So what was the point of Grierson's raid? All right, Grierson is, uh, is a commander of the, uh, of the Illinois Cavalry Regiment and a, uh, a brigade of Illinois cavalrymen. This is in uh, the late uh, autumn of 1862. And the winter of 62 and 63, were based in North uh, Mississippi. And uh, at this time, Grant is in the process of carrying out his Vicksburg campaign. But this time, uh, he's tried an overland advance on Vicksburg, which we talked before, and ended up with Sherman being defeated at the Battle of Chickasaw Bayou. He has uh, passed through a number of expeditions in which he tried to bypass Vicksburg using uh, the uh, the uh, Porter's fleet in cooperation but now time is running out for him he is uh he has started his troops under uh, General McClernand moving southward from the area of Milliken's Bend, which is about uh, 20 miles upstream from Vicksburg on the Louisiana side. And they're moving southward to bypass Vicksburg to the, uh, to the west and hopefully be able to cross the Mississippi River, uh, which they will do after during uh, the closing phase of the Gerson raid. Uh, that's when Grant will have tried to cross the Mississippi at uh, Grand Gulf on the uh, 29th day of April, but the Confederate river batteries are too strong, so he has the Porter run his gunboats past uh, Grand Gulf and march the army down the west side of the river out of range of the Confederate batteries. And of course, as we discussed before, they cross the Mississippi River and land at Bruinsburg on the, uh, the last day of April and will fight the Battle of Port Gibson on the first day of May. Now, Grant uh, will work with General Hurlbut, his uh, subordinate up at uh, Mem- uh, Memphis, uh, to launch a cavalry raid uh, that will be led by Colonel Grierson, that will begin in uh, near uh, uh, in North Mississippi, uh, in uh, just on the north side of the Tennessee line, and proceed southward in uh, into Mississippi 
traveling along what a watershed known as the uh, Tom Bigby uh, Ridge as Wilson starts southward uh, following the Pontotoc Ridge, passing through towns along it such as uh, New uh, Ripley, New Albany, and Pontotoc. When he gets in the Pontotoc area, uh, the Confederate uh, cavalry operating in northeast Mississippi to draw them uh, uh, to keep them from following, following Gerson as he heads further southward, Gerson will detach one of his regiments, uh, the uh, 2nd Iowa Cavalry under Colonel Hatch. Incidentally, Gerson almost missed starting on the raid. He was on a leave back in Jacksonville, Alabama, uh, Illinois, and the raid starts on the 17th, uh, daybreak on the 17th day of April. He, de- he gets back just hours before the raid started. And if he had not arrived when he did, it would have been known as, a ha- would be known as Colonel Hatch's raid. And I doubt if Hatch would have been able to carry out successfully. So when he gets in the Pontotoc area, he detaches uh, Colonel Hatch's regiment, and they'll demonstrate eastward toward the Mobile and Ohio Railroad. This is this north-south railroad running about, uh, on an average, of about 20 miles uh, east of the Alabama-Mississippi border. And uh, the Confederates fall for this fate, and the cavalry in that part of Mississippi will follow, uh, uh, northeast Mississippi, will follow uh, Hatch back to their starting point. So he's eliminated that threat. Then he heads, uh, then he, uh, heads on southward. This, he detached uh, uh, Hatch on the 21st. He passes through Starkville, the present location of the of Mississippi State, uh, passes through Decatur, Mississippi, about 20 miles north of the Mississippi, Southern Railroad of Mississippi, and on the morning of the 25th, he gallops in to Newton Station. That's the uh, station. Newton is halfway between Jackson and Meridian. So they reach Newton Station, and they rip up the railroad, uh, the Southern Railroad, for a short distance both east and west of Newton Station, thus cutting the Southern Railroad of Mississippi and drawing Pemberton's attention uh, to looking east, not toward Grant moving down the other side of the river on the Louisiana side. And uh, Wilson will then take his force and make a demonstration toward Garlandville. Garlandville would be a small town south of the main line of the Southern Railroad of Mississippi. And if he continued doing that, he would strike the Southern, he would strike the Mobile and Ohio Railroad at Enterprise. That's to draw the Confederate attention toward Meridian, an important rail junction, as you can gather, because that's where the Southern Railroad is crossed by the Mobile and Ohio. The Pemberton will order General Loring's men, who were up in North Mississippi, a division of about 5,000 men, 
his mission will be uh, to try and catch uh, General Wilson. Now, maybe if he caught up with him or outmaneuvered him, he could destroy him, uh, but he can't keep up with him. So Wilson, after demonstrating toward Enterprise, then changes direction and travels a route about 25 miles south of and parallel to the Southern Railroad, going west. And on the 27th day of, uh, of April, he, he crosses the Pearl River, a very formidable water barrier, barrier going north and south, or heads west, and strikes and cuts the north-south railroad, uh, the, what becomes the Mississippi Central Railroad, uh, about 20 miles south of Jackson, drawing Pepperton's attention that way. Now, since he knows on the 27th, now it's a very important day on the 27th, when Grierson, with his uh, 900 men into and uh, battle the artillery, crosses the Mississippi River at Georgetown. He's going to strike the North-South Railroad at Hazelhurst, Mississippi. That's 20 miles south of Pemberton's headquarters at Jackson. At this time, Grant is moving into position to try to cross the Mississippi River at Grand Gulf. Wilson now heads south and west toward Jackson, uh, toward Natchez to draw the uh, Confederate attention toward Natchez and draw the Confederate cavalry. They're supposed to be uh, screening, uh, watching for Grant's crossing of the river at Grand, at Grand Gulf. And when he finally crosses at Bruinsburg, Colonel Wood Adams, who is supposed to be waiting for him, uh, heads south and east to Union Church, where he meets Gerson. Now, Gerson uh, uh, now fools Adams. He now turns south, heads almost due east, reaches the north-south railroad, the uh, the Mississippi Central, or at uh, at uh, at Brookhaven, where the Union Confederates have a base. That's about uh, 30 miles north of the Louisiana line uh, on the uh, on the railroad. He then tears up the railroad, running south from uh, uh, from uh, from Brookhaven. And then moves westward again, traveling along a route uh, about 20 miles west of and parallel to the North-South Railroad, and about 40 to 50 miles east of Natchez. He will he now has the Confederates who are in Port Hudson, uh, which is uh, 20 miles north of, of, uh, of uh, Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge is held by the Union. In fact, the Union at this time controlled the Mississippi River 
uh, from Port Hudson, 40 miles north of Baton Rouge, to above Vicksburg. So what does, what does Grierson do then? He, he moves back to the North-South Railroad, tears up some track, and then heads for Baton Rouge, heading southeast. He's now west. He's now back. He's in Louisiana for the first time. And who's following behind him? Uh, Ward Adams with his cavalry, who had been, as you would say, he's maneuvered him out as you would use if you're using in basketball. He's maneuvered uh, Ward Adams out of his drop strap. Instead of uh, covering and watching for Grant as he comes ashore at Bruinsburg on the 20th day, on the last day of of uh, April, uh, Adams is chasing uh, uh, Grierson's men southward down the the Mississippi, uh, the North the, the North South Railroad. When he gets beyond uh, the area of Osaka, he leaves the railroad and heads for Baton Rouge, the Union base. Ed, we need to take a short break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Our guest is Ed Bars talking about Grierson's raid. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, tax, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors & Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Dot com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Our guest is Ed Bars, who's going to continue about Grierson's raid. The Confederates along the Louisiana-Mississippi line, east of, uh, east of uh, west of Macomb, are watching him for heading southward. So he races forward, crosses uh, the Amit River, the Kamit River, He's seven miles out of Baton Rouge. Grant has crossed the Mississippi at Grand Go- at Bruinsburg, and on the first day of of, uh, of uh, May, has secured his bridgehead on the west side of the Mississippi. On a small scale, it's just like the uh, landing in Normandy at Omaha Beach. He's now on the high ground. He's now uh, uh, on uh, across the river, the mighty river. He has a bridgehead. And, of course, the Battle of Grand, uh, Port Gibson is on the first day of May. On uh, at daybreak on the second day of May, where is uh, Grierson? He arrives at Baton Rouge to the cheer of the Union troops. 
in Baton Rouge. Thus, grant on that, thus now Grant is now across the river safely. He has moved his men into the area north of uh, Port Gibson, between the watersheds of the Bayou Pierre on the south and the Big Black on the north. Gerson is, uh, and the people who would have been instrumental in preventing this from happening have been maneuvered out of positions. Confederates in northwest Mississippi uh, or south of Memphis are looking for Gerson up there. The people in northeast Mississippi uh, are, have followed uh, Hatch, who's a decoy, decoy back into West Tennessee. Uh, General Roy's men are in and around uh, uh, ja Jackson, scratching their head, uh, wondering, uh, and they're going to now be ordered too late to move up and reinforce the Confederates at Port Gibson. So uh, this is one of the great, uh, uh, one of the great cavalry raids of the Civil War. Uh, it is a, a war. It's a raid in which the, the, it is greatly facilitated Grant's successful crossing of the Mississippi River. It has placed him on the high ground west east of the river. Uh, in the area of uh, north of Port Gibson, and enables him to go on his uh, campaign, which between the first day of uh, of uh, May, he will, will he will beat the Confederates at Port Gibson, beat them at Raymond on the fourth on the on the twelfth uh, uh, day of May, capture Jackson. Where the Mobile, where the North South Railroad, coming from New Orleans in Union hands, crosses the railroad uh, east, the East West Railroad, the Mississippi Southern. Then, after capturing Jackson, Grant on the 14th, Grant, Grant turns west, defeats the Confederates in the decisive field engagement at Champion Hill. Defeats him on the 17th of May at the Big Black, and of course, Vicksburg is uh, surrounded, and Vicksburg will fall on the 4th day of July. So, Gerson has conducted one of the uh, uh, great raids of the Civil War. What was the role of the Butternut Guerrillas? Uh, the Pentagon Guerrillas, they are about uh, a score they're about a score of men who are attached to him they're union soldiers they are, are uh, what we would call partisans now or rangers now and they operate as he moves southward uh, along the Pontotoc Ridge they move out and and cut the north-south telegraph lines that run uh, from the Confederate uh, uh, bases around uh, uh, south, about 40 miles south of uh, of Corinth, which is held by the Union and uh, Meridian. Uh, they also uh, cut the railroad. Uh, uh, and the telegraph lines, because wherever you have a railroad, you have to have a telegraph line. They also leave uh, or detach 
migration, and they move uh, west and will cut the uh, railroad that goes north from Jackson up to Jackson, Tennessee. So they add they add confusion and uh, and have uh, comfort for for the period. Uh, that's crucial to Grant getting across the river uh, for about between the 25th day of April and the uh, action at Union Union Church on the 28th day of April. Pepperdine has forgot all about Grant. Uh, he's concentrating on Wilson and his Will of the West Raiders. Now, Wilson only loses three dead men on this ride. He loses about 10 wounded in engagements, and so it's a, a, a great return uh, for a little investment. Okay, what happened to Grierson after the Civil War? Uh, Grierson stays in the Army. Uh, he will become gain right quite a bit of note because after the war, the the army will cut back the Union army, and when they cut back under the cutback of first in 1866, and then in 1868, they reduce. Since there's going to be more of a demand for cavalry in the army than there were before the war, the only five uh, mounted regiments in the United States Army before the war. They're going to create five new regiments to uh, uh, protect the western expansion and the railroads that are being extended from uh, the first transcontinental railroad and uh, the settlement of the and the settlement of Oregon and California. They will organize three new regiments, two white regiments, and for the first time, they'll have blacks in the United States Army. So, Wilson, uh, they will have two black cavalry regiments, the 9th and the 10th Cavalry, and Wilson will command the 9th Cavalry for a considerable period in the post-war uh, 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 army. These are the people that gain fame as the Buffalo Soldiers. At the same time, between uh, 1869 and uh, the uh, turn of the century, there are 25 infantry regiments in the army, but there are only two black infantry regiments out of the 25. That's the 24th and the 25th. The black cavalry regiments are stationed principally in, along the frontier, particularly in Texas and New Mexico. The, uh, Wilson will command uh, at Fort Davis in western uh, with the uh, 9th U.S. Cavalry. So he comes very, very noted as commander of for much of its of the time until he retires in eight in the early 1890s he will command on the frontier the 9th u.s cavalry because the, the indians 
principally refer to the black cavalry regiments as the Buffalo Soldiers. They sometimes call the two infantry regiments Buffalo Soldiers, but the ones that they put the monuments up to are the two cavalry regiments. One last question. The Horse Soldiers with John Wayne, directed by John Ford. How close is that to Grierson's raid? Not very close. It, uh, it, it is uh, not one of his great movies. Uh, for instance, uh, if I hadn't been courting, this is between you, if I hadn't been courting the woman that would become my wife, I would have walked out of the movie. <laughs> uh, they, take a wo- they take a woman, they have to have a heroine along, and they take a woman along in the raid. But worse, now, in the, war, in the Civil War, the Cadet Corps of BMI, of uh, 248 strong, will fight a battle in the Civil War at the Battle of Newmarket. The people in the Cadet Corps are primarily from about probably 17 to 19 years old. So what do they have to have a Cadet Corps out fighting against Grierson? They will be using the Cadet Corps from Jefferson Military Academy. This doesn't happen. The Jefferson uh, Military School are boys that are in their early teens. They're not 18 and they're not 16, they're not 17, 18 years old. In fact, they're so young that John Wayne catches one and spanks one. So they think of something that really happened in uh, the Virginia theater war, transferred to Mississippi, and instead of having the cadets being between 18 and 17, they're the, the cadets are, are boys 14 and 15 years old. So with those two things, the woman going and the scene with the uh, Jefferson Military Academy cadets engaging Grierson, if I had been there alone, I'd have walked out. Okay, well, fortunately, you didn't. Thank you. Because for... if I walked out, I probably, uh, she would probably thought I was a, an overbearing prince and we wouldn't have got married. <laughs> well, fortunately, it worked out. Thank you, Ed, for bringing history to life again, as always, and hopefully we'll be talking to you soon in a couple of months. Very good. Thank you so much. It's always fun talking to you. Thank you, Mr. Bars. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, they are cousins, sisters, they are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. 
If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. Welcome back to Ask Lori with me, Mike Connors, company now by my wife, Beth, and my son, Michael. Hello, Hello everybody. And, you know, one of the things about Grierson's Raid, um, which is kind of personal to us, Beth, you had two great uncles that right. were on Grierson's Raid. They were born, what, in Mississippi? Born in Mississippi, and um, they did business going from, they hauled freight from the, the Carolinas into Mississippi down to Natchez, and then the freight would be taken up river on um, flatboats to um, St. Louis. And the Methodist connection here is, I mean, it's, they may have been, Helping to take slaves north. Uh, that's that's before the war. That's that's before the war, and so now, before Grierson's raid starts, Stephen McKithen, that's the older of the brothers, was taking people up the river to St. Louis and knew Grierson because he went to the same church. They were Methodists, and at the end of the war. When this was over, um, Stephen's wife had died with his with his children, except for a baby, in the siege of Vicksburg. So she died in Vicksburg when he was outside with the Union troops. Um, at that point, he went. He stayed with Grierson thereabouts, but then after the war, he was actually on the 1870 census in St. Louis. So um, he obviously had some deep connection with um, Grierson, enough to join him, and then ultimately his younger brother, Billy, um, were with the 7th Illinois Cavalry. Yeah, now, I mean, this is a point of history, too, which we mention every once in a while in some of our talks. But there were 100,000 white Southerners who fought in the Union Army, a lot of them from Tennessee, uh, a lot of them from Kentucky, obviously. I don't know if Kentucky would be considered that. It was a border state. But a lot of them from Virginia. West Virginia, of course, broke off 
as part of that from the western North Carolina. There were a lot of unionists. Louisiana had more than a fair share of unionists. There were some some of the Cajuns and some of the um, immigrants from New Orleans, you know, volunteered for the union. Of course, all the Germans, wherever they were, were unionists, no matter what state they came from. So there were 100,000 white, at least estimated, 100,000 white Southerners who fought for the Union Army, which General Grant said had a tremendous impact on the war because if those 100,000 people, if the Confederacy had 100,000 more soldiers, who knows what would have happened. So he says that was a major factor in the war, which a lot of people never you know, acknowledged, or at least he did acknowledge in his memoirs. In any event, this is going to be wrapping up the show right now. If you have any questions, give us an email question. Michael, where do we email the question? That's going to be at askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Connors spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S. Ask any question whatsoever. If we can't answer it, we'll try to get somebody else who can. Uh, If you want to schedule an appointment with us at Connors & Sullivan, give us a call at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. We do not charge for the initial consultation. We have offices in Queens. Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Staten Island. Thank you for listening. Ask the lawyer. You know, let's our prayers and uh, for Ed Bars and God rest his soul. Bye bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.